This is Paul. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. And we are the big three from the Pod Clubhouse. Tonight we're going to be talking about the first and second episodes of HBO's new show, The Outsider. This one is based on a Stephen King book. And as we all know, Stephen King books always translate perfectly to the televised medium. (laughs) Sarcasm to the hilt there. Well, this show is, I think, if I understand correctly... Jason Bateman was the big pusher behind getting this show done. And directed six of the episodes. Well, that's what? that's a pretty good push, I, w- I would say. Yep. Nice. Yep. Nice, JB. Richard Price adapted all, wrote all nine scripts. So he's the writer for the season. Him and Stephen King, obviously, are the creator writers. And then uh, Jason Bateman did six of the 10 episodes for directing. Before we dive deep, guys, I want to ask you guys a couple questions. Now, I know both of you guys are King fans. I am a King fan from afar. I can't get too deep into his stuff because I get the willies, in case y'all don't know. And so I can't I can't scare myself too hardcore. However, I've recently been to Stephen King's house, and even the house gives me the willies. I know you jokingly said, Paul, that you know his stuff translates so awesome onto screen. Is there any of his stuff that you felt actually does do a good job because i mean we could all list off a bunch that kind of sucked hard but are there any that you're like okay this is the one that they're really competing with there are his stories that have supernatural elements and there's ones that don't so some people would say like stand by me might be a great movie that has no supernatural elements in it a a movie no one saw that has has a gigantic emotional wallop was the mist you ever see that mike Uh, i did see the mist that one punches you right in the face the the show is a disaster compared to i know that's why i'm asking i did not see the show i heard the show was a disaster oh it's buttholes I i feel like his tv stuff has been kind of hit or miss you know castle rock is probably the current most famous example which i know some people love And some people don't love. We saw the showrunners for that just before it came out. I guess, you know, if you if you think about the the kind of role that someone like Stephen King could have in his properties, I think he's stepped back even further than, say, George R. R. Martin in the later stages of Game of Thrones. I think there's a blessing that needs to occur for certain large character type moves but other than that tactical day-to-day storytelling is left up to the to the two showrunners if i if i recall how they described their relationship like i think they said that they had met steven like a couple times in person so that gives you an idea that's interesting but also maybe not a bad move jk rowling is currently a a very current example of writers with well-loved property who maybe don't do their properties when they translate to movies or I guess in this case TV if they stay too hands-on you know one of my theories is like the new Scamander movies have not done well mainly because JK was so involved in the script writing and I don't think that's her forte her forte is writing thousand page uh fantasy novels and then letting someone else take that work and adapt it to to the screen right i think maybe it might be the same thing you know stephen king let's back him off a little bit and uh let someone else play with it so what goes wrong you guys when when stephen king stuff which everybody says like keeps him up at night you're tossing and turning when you're reading the printed page i mean it's scary shit why does it come off so cheesy so much in when it comes onto any screen whether it be big or small what the heck happens in translation i I think for me the biggest deal 
with a Stephen King story is not usually huge elements of the story because some of those can be actually very disappointing. It's usually the fact that you like the characters. With a novel, you get a chance to get right in their head and stay in their head and hear what they think and in very close detail. In a movie, you only get to see what they do. And a lot of times that's not enough. I, I think I would add to that a lot of the elements like say Pet Cemetery, which is a book that really disturbed me. Watching the original movie adaptation of it, the parts that terrified me most, I realized while I was watching it, didn't translate to something that you could show well on screen. I think the idea I had in my head, the terrifying vision the book made in my head, was always going to be scarier than whatever they were able to do on the screen. Thing. So it kind of falls down in the special effects department, you think? Or I, just it just can't, I think can't it's, show it? I think it's the showing and telling part of it. I think, like Paul said, having the intimate interior knowledge of these characters and what they're thinking and what they're going through, it takes a very probably special kind of writer, director, and actor to bring that kind of internal monologue onto the screen. You know, you can't have a movie where someone is like, you know, sitting there with their coffee cup and a voiceover saying, I am terrified now. You know, that doesn't translate well. <laughs> right. But in a book, it may read very well. You know, it doesn't. I think Misery actually did a good job. Would you, I don't know if either of you guys read the book but i feel like that is one that people don't make fun of mm, as being yeah. cheesy she or pretty well nails, whatever like yeah it. and it, it is it sure. is legitimately scary and the, and it doesn't come off cheesy and i think it stands the test of time if we were to turn it on right now i think it would be equally scary as it was when we all first saw it i'm gonna say that that's my bar for this one even though i know that's a movie and this is a tv show but i can't even put things like under the dome or any of that shit even on the list i'm like Rant. you know my favorite stuff is shawshank it's stand by mm. me you know green mile that's my favorite stuff that i think has been done really well almost across the board versus his horror stuff which maybe says something about the the quality of his writing and and the theme as it translates to a to a movie and it know? says well, you like frank we were... darabont movies <laughs> Well, and kind of what we were talking about about in our What to Watch um, not that long ago, or what we watched, is that the idea, it's really hard to show horror in TV. It's, and sometimes it can be hard in a movie, but it's really hard to show in a TV show. And a lot of people shy away from it, and it ends up coming off cheesy or silly or whatever. It's just not, you can't really do horror. So this is a, a pretty big undertaking. Although, I think Misery works for me, as opposed to a lot of other ones, because it's that, like, your deep-seated horror of, like, being accused of a crime you didn't commit. Or in the in the case of misery, you know, being like basically taken hostage in some way where you can't get out, you're physically unable to get out. Like that seems like real as opposed to even though they add in other, you know, elements, obviously, in this show we're going to talk about. It may be a little premature, but I am willing to say that that so far the downfall of all those other televised adaptations are the structure where they got to fit a certain amount of action between certain commercials and mm. and. And so you have to have characters just just acting, reacting, going fast. And, and these two episodes, particularly, say, with Ralph, because he's he's our main character, we see him think a lot and not say anything for a long time. And, and you know, given the setting and, and the people that's around him, you, you can kind of understand what he's thinking about without needing to have some sort of narration or something like that. Bateman and crew seem to be so far allowing those character building through nothing more than just 
watching them do something in you know kind of boring build up and then they added other cool things that help like without knowing any better i would have said that david fincher might have shot this as a as opposed to jason bateman i've seen jason bateman's directorial debut do you remember when we watched bad words caroline i do he directed that that is about a man who exploits a loophole in the national spelling bee to get back at his father or stepfather, I think it's his, who, you know, was mean to him or something like always put the B first or something like that. Yeah. So that's because uh, there was like no age in it or whatever. So then he participates, but he's like an asshole. He's like a bully to the kids and stuff. Yeah. Right. He's it's like the Ken thing. Jennings of spelling bees. <laughs> in a bad way. Though, in a bad way. Ken right. He's a nice guy. Right. Well, let's get into this, into these episodes because you guys know I'm not one that can really handle a lot of this super duper scariness. So some of this I had to watch between my fingers. So yeah. I have to fill in the gaps. I told her me. that uh, she said, uh, um, I'll come in in about 10 minutes or something. And I, and I was like, that, that should do it. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> well, I well, I think we should establish too for anyone that's listening uh, who's read the book that's based on who hasn't read the book. I haven't read the book. I have read the book and I know what the twist is, but I don't remember much of the middle section. I am surprised by things that are happening, but I will not be surprised if you know, at the very end. But you're not going to squeal. Or no. Anything. But I think it'll be an interesting thing as the series progresses, though, to, you know, someone who maybe gets his memory jogged. And obviously, like you said, obviously there's obviously there's a twist because these first two episodes played like a companion series to True Detective more than a horror, you know, supernatural aspect to it, which I'm fully waiting for. But as someone who didn't read, I'm very much kind of stumbling around in the dark. And Caroline, I'm assuming, unless you read the book through your fingers, you did not read. I did not happen to read this book, no. The first episode has... I guess this, the trio on on the cast right now is not prone to this, but every so often when, when I'm reading the comments for a, a show, this kind of construction inevitably has people like, I didn't understand. And it's, it's, it's the time jumping back and forth. One second he's interviewing somebody and another second they're back, you know, t taking the body out of the, out of the forest. What we have is a carefully constructed back and forth between the discovery of a a boy's body and the lead investigator, one Ralph Anderson, putting together the evidence that he needs to go and get his suspect, who is Jason Bateman. Terry Maitland is no just like vagrant, though. This is a little league coach, a father. Everyone in the town seems to know him. Everyone in the town. <laughs> everyone knows him and everyone knows him enough to call him coach. This yes. is a teacher in the school system. They referred to Little League Coach, but I also got the impression it may be related to the school. I don't know if it was a strict school, a Little League team, or if it actually was a young school team. The way they were talking about the name of the team when the girls are cheering him on in the morning when he's telling them that they're going to play for the championship. That is one of the few things I do remember from the book is the big go and get him in front of everybody. This is probably the biggest decision that, that Ralph forces that he inevitably has to regret. Well, I was going to say because of the show. grotesqueness of the crime, but they refute that multiple times during the episodes where they're saying like, it wasn't reasonable that he was going to run. Like, why'd you really do this? He wanted to humiliate him. He wanted him to 
you know, really pay for it in every way possible. And none of this was going to be a cover up as far as he was yep. concerned. It was all going to be out in the open. Piggybacking on that, I agree. This was personal and it was visceral for him. As we learn, his son Derek was was one of Terry's players, spent a long amount of time with him. As in these kinds of towns, when the coach, you know, transporting, you know, seven or eight of the team members pile into their car, coaches in these kinds of little towns and uh, that kind of relationship, you spend a lot of, you end up spending more time than the parents do with their kids. They talk about later on, uh, Ralph and his wife, uh, Jeannie, talk about Derek and his cancer and the dying. It's very much Ralph isn't over that yet and hasn't accepted that. And so it almost seems like going after Terry in this very public, showy way was almost cathartic for Ralph. Like it let him put blame on Derek's death. It almost felt like it was exercising his own demons about his son's death. Because cancer sucks and it's hard to blame someone when when your child dies of cancer. If he could maybe associate Terry's heinous crime with Derek's death, it it seemed like in his mind. At first, I misunderstood his role. I thought he was a chief or something like that. Turns out he's just a plain clothes the detective but well, while he was chief in my mind i thought it was just a like a decisive you know we have a child murderer on the loose i found him here he is everybody look what i did kind of thing but that doesn't really match ralph or his his role in the in the town but i, I do think that there was some amount of that just kind of turned down from where i had it to you know half as half as intense there would be high anxiety especially amongst that age group of kids about like whether there was someone out there you know looking for our children so in a way that it makes sense to me what you're saying of like you want to do this big thing like hey everybody you don't need to be scared anymore we got him kind of thing but did they actually depict that to you guys where like other families were actually fearful for their children like oh you know you're gonna we're gonna give you a ride to school today you're not gonna walk or you know anything like that because i didn't catch that so did in the cutting between finding the boy the interviews and the bust it's mentioned that two weeks have passed. Terry Maitland mentions that two weeks have passed since the murder. It's time for people to get on with things because the wife says something about, I'm surprised they didn't cancel the game or something like that. So he says, it's been two weeks. Come on. I think that was meant to make you think, well, that's a little callous toward the murdered child. But but really, it was. I don't think there, there was anything to think there. So we do have a time frame there, except for those things interviews, things related to Where the body. Where people were scared or anything. Um, there wasn't anything else just around the town that they showed us that I, rec- that I recall. It struck me at the time, and I, I still think so, when you, when you put the when you put the flashbacks together and you see of all the evidence and interviews he had before making the arrest or ordering the arrest to be made, and you can see where there was a lot of overwhelming uh, circumstantial evidence against Terry, it struck me as a real dick move. It really, really put me off the ostentatious go put cuff him in front. That really bothered me. You know, it wasn't that you were just making a show of this arrest, but the it's against protocol. I told you to cuff him in front, you know, like explicitly telling his officer it's considered unsafe. Okay. Protocol wise, so you then... cuff someone behind your back for the officer's safety. Hmm. You know, yeah, cuffing in front is actually usually seen as a accommodation because it's it's uh less uncomfortable for the yeah. person and you'll often see when that happens like a perp walk you'll see like they end up throwing a coat over like their cuffs kind of in front of them 
So it hides the shame a little bit. I'm a scare baby. I don't want to get into the details of what they found in the body, but you guys can. So for those people who are, we have people sometimes, Mike, that you may not realize this. They don't watch the TV show. They just listen to our podcasts. So we might need to tell them what was the state of the body? Why were people so freaked out? What was so grotesque about it? I don't want to hear it, but you guys should say. <laughs> Pretty much mauled. Um, mm -hmm. Like, like left kind of like a carcass that had been fed on, I would say. Yeah, just face yeah. down. On the show, they say that the kid was sodomized with a branch, but then I, but then I read something else that he was actually raped by the murderer. Do you guys know, or did they say? I, okay, this is going to sound super. It's a level of heinous. Okay, but it's there's another no, like, level of pleasure to be gained. I want to say yes. out of putting a branch in somebody, but like if he was like a child predator, then you would think, okay, he's getting some sort of pleasure out of raping him. But I, I, like I don't even understand the whole thing. So obviously, this stuff spooks me. What What I do remember is that a there will be others, and b they all have this kind of sadistic okay. Kevin Spacey from Seven kind of shit that happens to them. So I don't remember who gets raped by what. Okay, so let's get into the witnesses. Okay, so we have these three witnesses. We have the older woman who saw Terry driving a white van and come up to the little guy and offer a ride. That is Miss Mary Mason, the elderly teacher who saw him across the street from Gerald's supermarket store. Do you guys say she's a believable witness? I know she's then categorized as an elderly woman who does not drive at night because she can't see well enough. Uh, credible, this was during the credible. day. And if... If we're taking what they saw in the flashbacks and what we see in their depiction as truthful, uh, I'll tell you, it is the only time, quote unquote, Terry, and I think that's how we have to refer to Terry, quote unquote, Terry, is the only time that he refers to the person he interacts by name. And in Mary Mason's story, we hear Terry driving the van and, and say Frankie and say Frankie's name and apologize, you know, that he's having a hard time about the flat tire or the chain broke on his bike. And that he'll pull over and help him load it up. And and it becomes and, and this becomes important later for I think unraveling the mystery. None of the other witnesses that end up testifying is there actually a name given when he interacts with those people. But here in Mary Mason's story, she she does uh, we do see through her eyes. Uh, he he refers to Frankie as, uh, by name. Interesting connection. I I I missed that detail. Yeah, I went back. I thought I thought it was the case, and so after I watched the episode, I went back to check hers, since hers hers is really the first one that comes up. He doesn't he doesn't call the bouncer by his name in the ne ship joint. Never calls the bouncer by his name, and I don't know if you want to jump ahead, but the most telling because again, everyone knows Coach, even when you're at Peach's. Uh, what was it called? Peach's <laughs> the Peach's crease. Um, <laughs> wow, that is what it was called, the Peaches Crease. The Peaches <laughs> Crease. Uh, wow. He jumps in the taxi driver's uh, car, Willow, Rainwater, Willow Rainwater's taxi car, and she's like, Coach, do you know where you are, or does your wife know you're out? And he says, Ma'am, aren't you supposed to log my call in, my, you know, picking me up into your station master? He doesn't say Willow. He doesn't say Miss Rainwater. He doesn't address her in any kind of familiar way. He says, Ma'am. Aren't you supposed to, you know, log my pickup time in with your dispatcher? Ooh, freaky. Yeah. Okay, okay. I like this detective work. Good sleuthing. Yeah, Caputo. and he and he never refers to Claude as Claude. Claude refers to him very personally, but rewatch the conversation with Claude. He refers to him as you would be able to you would be able to talk to someone you didn't know in the way that he talks to Claude. Very okay. All right. So let's get into the other two witnesses. We have the little girl, Junie. 
Junie Moore. Junie B. Moore. Like, I mean, God, that was the first time I really saw how... Bloody. Bl- yeah. Well, and around the mouth. I See, I didn't know about the bites because I didn't see the body. I closed my eyes. Yeah. So I didn't know about the, the bites. And so when I saw the ring of blood around his mouth, I was like, shut up. He bit him. And I didn't know, like, to the extent of, like, what was going on here. So that made things pretty disgusting for me. The way he just stares that little girl down, too, as he's, like, driving away. Horrible. And, yeah. you know, Branch hit me in the nose is a weak excuse for... No shit! <laughs> for, the nine, for the nine pints of blood you are covered in. That's some, that's some fucking Branch you got hit by. <laughs> okay, but right. so that's, that's, like, a huge theme, though, throughout these episodes of, like, how much he does that is so blatantly ridiculous. Like, he doesn't yes. even come up with a good excuse. Yep. It's not remotely uh, believable. Why would he be so callous about, like, who cares if you think it's a branch? We all obviously can see it's not a branch. Little girl, believable. We totally think she saw what she saw. Totally think she saw what she saw. Yep, I agree. Okay, and then we have the bouncer in the strip joint. Now, he's a little bit more, you know, has a lot to potentially gain right since he's got a long rap sheet to you know want to be given some info but again we all agree he probably saw what he saw yeah well video footage says he basically indicated that he is doing everything he can to fly on the straight and narrow right at the peaches Uh, crease (laughs) well as much as you can i mean he says he goes to anonymous everything just to cover all his bases so that he stays clean and tries to make the best decisions he can but once you're a strip club bouncer you might need to you know look into the gold watch program right um i think he's inclined to want to help the police the video Um, surveillance camera at least visually actually confirms his story it confirms the blood on the back of his coat it confirmed that he came out in a different outfit from the bathroom you can't maybe the the words you know you can't verify through the through the videotape but Visually, Claude gives a dead-on story, even down to the time. He's actually more correct on the time than Willow, the taxi driver, is. So Claude actually be- ends up being pretty reliable. And interesting. And the interesting note here is the drop that, quote-unquote, Terry parks his white van in the employee parking lot around back, where it's obviously going to be noticed because it doesn't belong to an employee. Mm-hmm. And there's blood dripping out of it, probably. Right, well, and the goo, the general goo. <laughs> so much, okay, all so right. Much goo. So that set up, you know, the why we definitely think he did it side of town. At this point, are you guys like all in? I know, Mike, you hadn't read the book. So are you like, well, this seems pretty open and shut. How is he going to refute this? It was too early in the story for me to feel like it was that I, I felt like something had to be going on because especially when they get into the 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 Amtrak station stuff and he's just eye fucking the camera yes. like like no one casually accidentally stares at a security camera like that you stare at a camera like that when you know you're bidding videotape and you want someone to see you that really it was like that's not right there's something wrong here yeah i can't give my answer on the um is he the Telling the truth or is he lying? I, I should not give my answer. Well, all right, then zip it for Scherzies. Okay. Yeah. Oh, just back on witnesses. Howie. We also have the very first guy, the guy who finds uh, little Frankie, is the guy with the dog who. Dog guy. The dog guy who starts off the witness uh, eyewitness trail by noticing the white van parked in the parking lot that's normally empty by that time. And that's why he ended up remembering the white van, the unmarked white van. So the white van becomes a very consistent point among all of the witnesses it's among mary uh junie dog guy claude uh except for taxi cab driver 
Willow. Um, everyone, everyone verifies the white van. This thing is this thing is making its way around town. It is not a nondescript car. When the uh, cop asks to dis- uh, Ralph asks him to describe it. I mean, it's like he does everything except say classic kidnapper van. Yeah, <laughs> look yeah. for that. Uh, can- candy being offered up front for children. Right. <laughs> Right. Permanent candy bowl. I don't know. It's, I don't know if this is a phrase in the South. And I noted this because I wanted to ask you guys. Uh, it is not a phrase I was familiar with being the northern Yankee that I am. When Bloody Terry goes into the bar and uh, he's talking to Claude, he asks him if there's a dock in the box. Did you ever, oh. did you ever hear yeah. that? Yeah. I, yeah. I, what, what does that phrase mean? I mean, Claude takes it to it tell him that there's like like urgent a, care. Yeah, it like means urgent, urgent care. care. Okay. That's yeah, how Claude took it. We all it. say so, that. Yeah, Claude took yeah. it that way too. I was like, oh, is that some kind of like prisoner lingo? Or like would, no. like, would a little league coach know that? Uh, that no, that no, no. Duck in the box is, yeah, we definitely, that's that's exactly what we call it actually. And it's like, a, yeah, it's just like where you, like a, like a walk-in doctor any walk-in place that you could get some medical care. That's well, what Doc in the Box is. tell you my, my feeling, not reading the book, point in the story, after the Amtrak cameras and, and the way he's staring at the camera, the kind of informality of the eyewitnesses conversations, I'm suspicious. And, and, and where we are in the story of episode one, I'm suspicious that this is as open and shut as it's being presented. Oh my God! Ah! Why did you do that? Did, did, oh my god. Did Terry Maitland just stop by your Jesus house? Jesus Christ. Okay. Get a no. Oh my god. Get away from me. Oh my god. Oh my god, Mike. Oh my heart. What just happened? Paul snuck up behind me and I am two rooms away and he like touched my arm <laughs> and I was looking down at my notebook and I was talking and I didn't know anyone was there. Oh, my heart. It hurts inside my ribs. <laughs> you scared me. What do you mean? I'm over here. You saw somebody else do that. <laughs> I, 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 we saw Paul staring at the Amtrak camera so when that happened. I hate you. <laughs> Well, at least Caroline will be up all night tonight to edit a podcast. So no, no chance of her sleeping tonight. <laughs> I don't even know. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. My heart is like a jackhammer. You are a jackass. <laughs> Man, Podcasting excellence. I didn't realize this was going to be an interactive horror podcast. That was pretty authentic. I like it. Right. Next, I'll be outside your window, Mike. <laughs> Third floor. Come get it. I'm just going to put my head down. <laughs> so where were we? Let's see. Have we have we <laughs> talked about Howie? Yet? Oh, no. We were just about to get to Howie because Howie leads to a couple other things that we got to definitely talk about. Uh, Howie is played by, uh, by Bill Camp, who is definitely a hey, it's that guy. But I love when he's on screen. He is everything you want your lawyer to be. Yeah. You know, he, he's been around the block. You know, no bullshit. You know, he knows the ins and the outs. He knows the tricks. What'd you think? What'd you think of Howie the lawyer who golfs during the day? Well, I think I, I'm not, sh- I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not a big city lawyer, but it seemed like once things started to fall apart a little bit, the DA was scared of Howie. He knew Howie, once Howie got his, his feet under him, Howie was going to be uh, formidable, which, you know, I, I assume DAs are not usually in the market of pretending that they're or acting um, scared of, of other lawyers. So that 
that kind of told me a lot because um, uh, we're reviewing both the first and second episode here. So I'm not really too out of line by bringing that up. Yeah, I thought he, he knew what to do next, which is an important thing for the guy that you're turning to in an emergency. Yes. And I think he gives her great advice about the warrant, even though it ends up not being very useful. No, I think he gives solid advice to Glory, which is a weird name for a person to have. And, uh, and and for Terrence in uh, jail. Uh, no, I, I feel confident Howie is my lawyer. Uh, Howie leaves me with good feelings. You know, in a best of a bad situation kind of deal. And he also brings his investigator, who seems a little more like uh, takes t- takes the good, he takes the bad, <laughs> right? He He's not attached to any of this as, as much as Howie is. But, yeah, you know, no, he's, he's attached thorough. to making sure he gets paid and he does a good job I think for his so. paycheck. Yeah. You know? Um, right. I got the also impression, not in this one so much, but in definitely in the next episode, I think it was. Nope, nope, it's in this one. I got the impression that the way he interacts with Ralph, he was definitely a cop at some point. He knows all these people. That's the other thing, too, in this town. Everyone knows everyone. Everyone knows Ralph. Everyone knows Terry. Everyone knows Glory. Everyone knows Howie. Everyone knows these people. You get the impression they have all lived together their entire lives. You know? You do. That's very Stephen King, though. Everybody yeah. grows up with everybody else. Sure. Cherokee City, very small town in Georgia. What did we think about the hooded figure outside of uh, Maitland House while Glory is being frazzled by the GBI and their warrant where they could take anything they want? But what did we Was think that the very, very first time that we saw that him? Is, that is the first time I'm we see the hooded him. figure. Yes. He is in the crowd. They don't They don't pull in on well, him. I definitely zoomed in. Yeah. The camera doesn't in this shot. They they will later. Um, but in this first time we see the hooded figure, he's just in the crowd of paparazzi and, and onlookers and rubberneckers outside the Maitland house. But right there. They, I definitely saw him because yeah. they scare me. Hooded figures scare me. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Uh, understandably so. want to know something crazy. Today, it was a drizzly day here and I was driving our kiddo to school and it was super early, like the other schools hadn't opened yet. And um, there was a kid walking in the drizzly rain with a gray hoodie pulled up over his head. And I was like, God damn it. Like I couldn't even, I was like, not today. Killer! Killer! I can't can't handle this today, kid. You take your hood off and get wet. We're not doing that. You drippy motherfucker. You better take that hood down. I couldn't. I wanted to like yell out like, no! Uh, Get out of here. Now, what did you guys think? What was your take at this point on how the police were reacting with the evidence they had versus, you know, not really listening to or asking Terry his side of the story. And then when they initially hear Terry's story, and he gives a very blow by, before they have any kind of evidence to support it or not support it, Terry gives a very well-stated alibi about where he was, who he was with, and what he was doing at the time that uh, that Frankie was being killed. Did that surprise you? Did that, did that cast out? Or were you still thinking the police were the right uh, in the right with the way they were handling this. They never pause. I, You know, they, they just keep going with their theory, uh, despite what Terry is saying. In the King books that I've read, when the police are given sort of a faceless role in the story, they are almost always bumbling, incompetent, just, you know, looking for a suspect, any suspect, doesn't matter, as long as they're they, you know, generally fit the description, then they're good enough. Let's just go with that guy. That's a very common 
issue with the police. You, sometimes you get a named police officer and then maybe we'll follow him a little bit. They're very rarely main characters in his in his books. And generally there's just, I don't know. I, I don't know that Stephen King likes the man all that much. Do you, do you think they were bumbling in this or do you think they were just over over enthusiastic? Not, not bumbling, but yeah, just the we got our man you know, and that's what we're doing. We got our man, right exactly. Yeah. That that kind of mentality that I don't know if it's real. I hope it's not real, but that does seem to be a prevailing um TV trope. But I think it's so rare to have a situation like this where you have a kid in the woods like this where you end up with so much surveillance footage, so many witnesses like step by step telling you exactly where he was and, you know, the timing of it all, the way that, you know, they have the Amtrak, they have the strip joint videos and stuff like, I mean, wouldn't you feel pretty damn confident that that this is what happened if you were the police? Yeah, I guess. I mean, what would Mike, you, you could, need, I guess, to feel confident? If I mean, it wasn't you could that? you could probably talk about what do they call it and the um, the levels of evidence that you need in order to make either an arrest or a conviction and all that kind of things are are they kind of grow as you as you, you go through the you know process. They actually do a good job of talking about it at, more so in episode two in the later half of uh, episode one, especially when Howie gets involved because Howie pokes all of the holes that a judge and certainly a jury is going to is going to ask you. Yes, you have got a, a wall of witness eyewitnesses whose stories all match up and fill in parts of the same puzzle. You know, eyewitnesses, everyone likes the idea of an eyewitness, but they are notoriously unreliable. You know, photo arrays are very unreliable. Courts don't like to use them. Juries don't like to convict on them. People want they want a person and they want really hard evidence that that person was there doing that crime. Um, and that's the thing that they don't have. Uh, they're resting on forensics. They're resting on the DNA evidence, which eventually does come back, you know, and confirms the, the teeth marks and all of the fingerprints and the blood, the very rare blood type. You know, they've got a great forensic case against Harry, but they don't have the really personal touch that a jury is going to want to convict someone. Um, so you, can you don't think that the video footage like that isn't that isn't enough the surveillance footage of a bloody coat guy and even he didn't even clean up his face I mean he came into the strip joint with his face still covered in blood which is kind of crazy you think you'd almost like naturally wipe your muzzle uh, I think I think a good lawyer could come up with a million reasons why you could have a disoriented looking man coming in to a an establishment looking bloody they'd all be bullshit but at least they'd be alternative explanations that are in fact plausible whereas like mike's saying the if you have like time-coded you know video from a reputable tv crew saying you know he was here then that's that's really hard to beat well and that's what we have to get into right is like this okay so i, I when they when he actually was able to say like mike you asked the question at what point did you feel like you were like is this are you believing him when he's telling his story the part the exact part when i like my stomach went like hmm is when he was at the conference with two other men yes and he when names he them said, he names yes, them without when he said i was there with these two other men mm -hmm. and here's where we traveled and here's where we were and i was in this conference room 
nothing. I didn't care about anything except for those two men. And then I was absolutely holding my breath when they went to the hotel footage. I was like, is he going to be on camera? Is he going to be on camera? I totally recognized him as that was him walking into the gift shop when they showed it the first time, but that still didn't seem to be enough. So then when they actually did have the like uh, TV crew in their recording, that was like, whoa, now we're really seeing something. Yeah. Asking, I mean, sitting there, he's asking about, you know, Slaughterhouse Five, you know, being a banned book and, you know, it, it really, really hard to construct that because that is real life video of a person doing something. You know, I, I think it's harder if, if you have video footage of uh, a quote unquote Terry person mutilating and biting and killing this small boy, that's damning evidence, even if it's on video footage. All you had really was, you know, five different stages in the after the murder was done bits of evidence. All of the video footage that they have was done hours after the alleged murder. The nearest to the time of the murder is the little girl, Junie, who even the DA, ambitious as that motherfucker was, and holy shit, was he unlikable. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, even he's like, it's a little girl's testimony. We're, we're not going to convict this beloved figure of the community on this little girl's, you know, memory and testimony, no matter how believable she is. Well, I would say the older woman, you know, claiming to see him with the kid, you know, right at that point, talking to him in the parking lot. I mean, that was that was pretty, you know, at the time of the of the incident kind of stuff, you know, I guess that's true. I guess that's true. But again, a good I get defense lawyer, though, is going to pick that apart and and get her so confused. What, what was it? She she can't drive more than two miles because of her poor eyesight. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that's why she goes to Gerald's instead of the much superior Kroger's. You know, like I don't live in the South and I don't have Kroger's, but I have been in Kroger's and that is a nice store. I would drive the extra distance to go to Kroger's, you know, <laughs> that's hilarious Okay, so, over Gerald's and what the fuck is Gerald's. But uh, we don't know what the fuck Gerald's is, but you should drive to H-E-B past the Kroger. I go to ShopRite. I'm a can-can boy. So, oh, God. I'm a ShopRite um, can-can guy. But uh, but yeah, you know, so all of their witnesses had had issues. It just made an overwhelming feeling of it. But nothing that stands up to this guy at the conference with two guys that he states that he works with, you know, on TV asking this question, you know, that's that's really hard to overcome. So, Mike, in a in a legal in the course of a legal, I don't know, problem like this for an for a person that's been held and put in jail, but is still on his way to his arraignment. Where's the chance that you ever can, you know, get out of it, go to get bail or whatever the, the right terminology is so that how is it that he's in jail that whole time for a couple of nights? That's the, uh, if it's a weekend, you can be held over the weekend before your arraignment trial. You don't have to be arraigned on the weekend. And I think they say in Georgia, he's a, they're allowed to be he, they're allowed to hold him for 48 hours before they have to take him for arraignment. So they can hold you in prison, but where when he's going to prison and he's wearing that suit, that's the first time he's going to be in front of the judge when he's going to, you know, plead not guilty and his lawyer is going to make the request for bail. That's the first time. Okay. Yeah, that that's what that that's what that is at the top of episode two. That's what that that hearing is. Um, See, and I think that's one of those times when Stephen King does such a great job of taking real life situations and really scaring you to death because 
um, the how he explains to both him and his wife, you know, justice is like a train and it stops at every stop and it doesn't really know how to do it in any other way. I love and that. So you basically just have to go through it. And I was like, wow, that's so true. And so scary as like a citizen, like you just have to go through this. Like you yeah. could die in prison because that guy decides to go ahead and jump you, you know, you and- didn't, you didn't do anything to begin with. And, and revenge for kid killing, you know, it's a it's a popular trope you see in social media, it's a, in uh, pop culture, but it is absolutely true. Killers and murderers and horrendous people in prison have a code. Uh, pedophiles and kid touchers and, and kid murderers, they will get stabbed and shanked and mutilated in jail. Uh, it is a, a code of prisons that is a stereotype, but is also plays out constantly. Uh, I found that completely believable that he would be threatened like that for the crime that he was accused of, for sure. Do you guys have any reaction to Mama Peterson? I think her actual name was Joy having the heart attack after she bashes the shit out of her house and then dies. It took a minute to understand um, why she had died. Uh, It was clear that when they gave the news to the dad and the son and the way that they, you know, were so grieving there that she had passed away, but I wasn't sure why she passed away. And it took a couple of, um, of like reading a couple articles to be like, Oh, kind of like Derek and the cancer. It was like, Oh yeah, that's, I had to put that together. It was, um, Oh yeah. No, when she grabs that left arm, when she grabbed that left arm, I was like, Oh, she's, she's down for the count. That's not a panic attack. You start grabbing your arm. That's TV code for you're having a heart attack. And for a woman to have a heart attack, that's serious shit. You know, women never get depicted as having heart attacks on TV. So that's true. It, so I, I knew she was down for the count. And then uh, I found the Undertaker a little bit callous. Did you guys have a reaction to that? Oh, he, God. The he 20% like, off guy? Yeah, he's, yeah. You're getting two coffins? Yeah, he's given breaks since, you're getting, since, since you need two. What the fuck, dude? What what school did you go to for uh, sympathy and bedside manner? <laughs> I'll, 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 right. I can knock something off the embalming. Oh, thanks, brother. Right. That's this is definitely so a bogo good. situation. <laughs> oh, my God. That's so gross. Uh, so have we gross. shown you our bunk bed casket line? Oh, my <laughs> God. <laughs> They're separated six feet from each other. So, right. Anyway. The bottom just flips. We just strap them in. You know, like, stake I was thinking, like, stack Super gross. <laughs> That's really funny. That's really funny. Ugly. Uh... I think I think the the combination of the very public arrest and then the boy's family just completely going to to hell in one reason or another is all meant to give Ralph, who's ordinarily probably a pretty honorable guy, a gigantic hole for his character to climb out of. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is all on if him. It... it is all yes. on him. Very right, much exactly, so. and he has to live with that. And, and he says, I mean, he eventually says that, but he has to and will be haunted by what he's done. Uh, before we jump into episode two, what did we think about uh, Ralph and uh, Glory's daughter? She, she's seeing the boogeyman, and she's having conversations with him in her room, and he's saying bad things about her father and stuff, and and no one else sees him, and obviously he's gone when the lights come on. But did did that give you shivers, or was or was your reaction? This is just a girl who's distraught. You know, again, hundred percent. I was thinking of George Jessa. from your book. Yeah, fucking George. <laughs> definitely George from Evil. Definitely giving that vibe. Yeah. Or um, Carol Ann from from uh, Carol Ann. Yeah, Poltergeist. Hey, yes. Just, so you're she saying sees her, something that her nobody name else is sees. Jessa Paul. That's what you're saying. Jessa. Yeah. Jessa. Jessa. I thought that the part where this is it's the second or third time when she does this move that there was like. 
I thought she peed on the floor, a la Exorcist. But later, like upon like reading other articles, they said it was just like some sort of moisture goo that was on the floor. That is some some sort of residue that we're supposed to pay attention to. Uh, they make it explicit at the end of the second episode. It's a goo from the guy. How did they tell us that it was a goo from the guy? Um, a couple things. Uh, so they have the scene at the end of episode two with the barn and the, the kid is in a barn and he finds the clothes. Yeah. And if they zoom in on the clothes, you'll see there is goo dripping from the clothes, uh, which are just laying there otherwise, but there's goo dripping there. And when you look at the puddle at the, at the base of their bed, it's not just like a water puddle. It's, it's almost like a gel of, of goo kind of congealed. And either case, even if it was water, it is the kind of water puddle of someone who had been standing there dripping on the floor. Uh, so it's a monster that emits KY jelly. Yes. I was just going to say feet. goo is like very uh, <laughs> code. <laughs> yeah, he's the the hooded guy is there for their pleasure. Oh, God. Um, okay, right, so I, but I was thinking of the exorcist thing. You know, the other thing I was thinking of since you brought up Pet Cemetery, didn't that kind of remind you a little bit of a Pascal, the little kids seeing Pascal, listening to Pascal? Yep, 100%. Remember that whole thing? Mm hmm. Yeah, no, yeah, I, I think right. I think it's the daughter. A, yeah, I think it's he definitely... might have even dripped some sort of goo, blood or something. I don't remember. It definitely seems well, to be had, a yeah. thing where yeah, the kid is the kid is tapped into something that the parents can't see it. That's also a big uh, king theme: is kids can see magic, adults cannot. And all their names, for God's sake, Ralphie, Frankie. These are names we've heard many times. Yeah, he kind of likes those those classic names like that. Um. Yeah, but Je Je Jess is clued into something for sure uh, that the rest of us haven't caught up with yet. But the, the Which goo I'm man. Scared about. I'm scared. I'm scared about goo man. Goo man in their house. This is going to make me very nerved up. <laughs> All right. Yeah. <laughs> For goo man to be in the house. It's yeah. So not good. So episode one is good because they, you know, they set that up really at the end of the episode, but obviously we delve more into that in episode two. Episode two is Ralph starting to figure out that he might have started something that got out of control on him because he goes to visit Terry at the jail and they have this epic chat where Terry explains his answer to did he ever touch Ralph's son and he gives this great story about teaching him how to bunt and you could tell like this was not some um you know, made up to save my ass kind of story that a bullshitter might come up with. This was, or at least he's a tremendous bullshitter if it was. This was something that had actually touched him and, and he he knew about the boy and had paid attention to the boy and it was special to him, this story. It's something he might have even kept to himself his whole life just, just for his own, you know, sense of uh, accomplishment, having taught, taught a small boy uh, something as hard as as, as what is it called drag bunting. drag bunting, drag bunting yeah. what's the right word yep drag yeah. bunting. that's it um so yeah that was a pretty pretty epic scene and the the way this is um shot the reason i mentioned david fincher is like if you look at the colors like in gone girl or or uh mind hunter that tv show on mm -hmm. um netflix it's like you can see bright colors, but once you get to a certain certain brightness, it goes to black pretty quick, you know, 
and they shoot shoot it the same way here. And in this scene, it's it's even more pronounced because they don't turn on any of the lights in the cafeteria where they're at. So you only get just faint impressions of, of lots the, of shadows, uh, lots of shadows. Yes. You know, yeah, creepy I, stuff. I agree with you so much that this was such a well crafted story because it is one of those things that he he did step up for this little boy in a way that, and he didn't mince words. Like he like I thought for a minute that Ralph was going to actually get like upset with him because he's saying like your kid's so small, he's the littlest one, like all this stuff. Like those are words that could get a Papa Bear kind of angry, you know, if you wanted to. And um and so I thought oh man you're you're like stepping right onto the line and then you're saying the other kids are teasing him even saying guifo all this stuff Ooh, I like I thought you're getting close you're getting close and then for the punchline to be like and I like really thought hard about this and turned it around for him and he became this beloved kid on the team good job only story you could tell but takes the bow and says he practiced but I did that I did that Ralph I made your kid better I changed his life. It affected me, but it also affected him. And yeah, and then he ends it with a coda of, you know, you asked me if I touched your kid. I hope I, I hope I did, which really, you know, wow, what what a great opening monologue. I think Jason Bateman suffers sometimes from being a little too flat and unaffected, but not here. I, I think this is probably the best monologue he's ever delivered in his career. Well, not scene. only that, but this is pretty much his swan song because it, I mean, yes. he doesn't have much to go here. And Spoilers. so to go out on that, well, we're in episode <laughs> two. To go out on that, to go out on that note, I felt very like, you know, wow. Yeah. You're, wow. Yeah. But if you, if you only and, had and, one and, last and story to tell, and just, that was a good one to tell. And just how irregular the event is also, you know, this cop should not be talking to this accused man in the dead of night in a dark and stormy prison, you know, kind of situation. You know, they both acknowledge. Yeah. With no lawyer, with no DA's permission, like this should not happen. So it, it really ups the stakes for how, how hard Ralph is now thinking about the shit storm he has created and how perilous Terry's situation is in, you know? So let's get to the arraignment. As Caroline mentioned uh, or alluded to, Terry kind of gets Jack Rubied here on the way into. Kind of the... gets Jack Rubied. Kind of gets Jack Rubied. I mean, it makes you wonder with such a long lead up to the to the front door. Does this place not have a back door or or what? What's going on? I here? said the same thing. I was like, why the parade route all the way <laughs> I, up there? Like, good night. I I think that was extremely on purpose. You know, D. A. Uh, Hayes, Kenneth Hayes, that asshole. Um, you know, he, he, he's crowing. This is his reelection right here. He's going to sew it up. He's going to lock it in, in one big felt swoop. The crowd wants blood. This is their killer. And he is going <laughs> to put a him douche. and he's going to put him on parade. <laughs> and, and I don't think that was any kind of coincidence that it was, you know, a project one r- runway length, you know, walkway for him to, to walk down. Uh, you know, I'm surprised he wasn't handing out rotted fruit, uh, for them to oh, throw. God the throw at him, the boos and the hisses. Um, the thing is, is that, again, he's not walking alone. Like, I mean, they're they're putting their own men and women, you know, in, in harm's way to prove this point, you know, like they, it was so short-sighted. True, true. But look at that, you know, you said Jack Ruby. Go look at the Jack Ruby footage uh, from when he gets killed on camera. There are a lot, a lot, a lot of Dallas uh, deputies around Jack Ruby uh, when he gets shot, which definitely supports the conspiracy theory. 
there's not that many cops around this most wanted heinous child killer. There's Ralph, there's pregnant Tamika, there's the GBI yeah. guy, and that's pretty much it. And Ralph's wife behind him, you know. A couple of red shirts. Yeah, 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 for sure. But not the kind of security you would put around this guy if you were really concerned about his safety. Paul and, I are, vest. Paul and I are very well versed in old Jack Rubes because, you know, it happened all in Dallas. And so you guys used to go to his strip club. To, no, we've been to the <laughs> book depository. We've been to the we've been to all the museum stuff. And for sure that I mean, he gets so close, though. I mean, so sure close. So there is a fuck ton of deputies around belly. him and he gets yeah. so close. <laughs> No, he's like he's he's like up against his belly practically. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's crazy. So this was a much further shot. One of the question marks we had was um, we heard a comment of, um, on a YouTube thing where the guy said that when Mike, this is going to be on you, okay? So use your use your memory hard. When Ralph takes down the Peterson boys' um, mask and off his sunglasses, that the face that he sees is Derek's. And it's only when he pulls back the hat and he sees the red hair that he sees the Peterson older son. I don't think so. Yeah, me neither. I, I was like, what? No, Did I, I totally I, miss I, that? As soon as he takes starts taking off the, the mask and the glasses, I'm like, oh, that's Ollie. Which clearly it was because, you know, we, we had seen his face turn when him and his father are getting the twofer BOGO deal at the Undertaker's. <laughs> You know, earlier right. at the beginning of the episode, um, it made total sense to me. Yeah, no, I don't. I don't think so. I'll go back and look again. I don't think there was any mind trick here. I think, I, I think you could hear Ralph's heart break a little bit when he realized he just killed the other son of this family. Um, by this point, who is now down to only one person, the father. As yeah, dads, no. how do you guys take that? So everybody's dead: wife, kids, everybody. Do you do what this dad does, or do you just go start a new life? No, I, I don't think I commit suicide, but I do think uh, I become a unabomber. Just a, what? <laughs> just a hermit is, is all I mean by that. Not an actual bomber. Well, then just say hermit, man. You don't have to say unabomber. Yeah, I, I become I become the guy on like Led Zeppelin's fourth album. I think that's what I do. I think I just withdraw from society. And then let nature take its course, you know, turn my blood type to liquor and uh, and then just, you know, I guess suicide, but in a much slower way. <laughs> well, give Good that to, to look forward to. Yeah. Good to know. <laughs> yeah. This murder scene is important for a couple of reasons. One, because obviously Ralph shoots Ollie Peterson, Frankie's older brother. But before he dies, Ollie gets off a couple shots. He gets Tamika in the leg. This is Ralph's partner who's pregnant, which I didn't think I don't realize I didn't realize until much later she was pregnant. I think he takes out a couple red shirts. Importantly, he puts a bullet right across the carotid artery of our Terry Maitland, who bleeds out and as his wife uh, will point out later, spends his final words trying to convince Ralph that he did not do this instead of saying, I love you, honey, I'm about to die. He pleads his last words with uh, th with Ralph. What did you guys think of that? Was that how you would like to spend your last words if, if you were in the same situation? Do you think you're a Terry? You spend it pleading your case or do you turn to your wife and uh, and say goodbye there? My wife would know I love her. <laughs> I would hope so. That Well, first of all, I don't know you know you're dying when you're dying. Oh, I think he knew so, he was dying. I think he knew. He, think I think he, he was, he was the like, done, done? I think he was the only one who knew he was dying. They were all around him. 
Like, oh, we'll stop the bleeding. We'll stop the bleeding. I think he was. No, but look at his face again. Okay. Look at it. Yeah, it was. It was. He was. He was intentionally struggling. I think to get out. I didn't do this. I didn't do this. I didn't do this. Uh, I think at that time that was the most important thing that the world remembered about him. Well, there's such a thing as a deathbed confessional. Is there such a thing as a deathbed confirmation uh, or or affirmation or something? I mean, does that count? Deathbed. Deathbed rebuttal, but maybe it counts as much though. <laughs> maybe at your deathbed, you're not so concerned about trying to plead your innocence anymore. I remember reading this part in the book, and I I I always listen to books. I remember rewinding this because I couldn't believe that they had killed you know Ned Stark <laughs> right away. Yeah. In the, I felt in the, the story same exact here. way. I was like, wait, he's dead. Wait, he's dead. Because I thought for sure, isn't this the type of the, situ- the situation where textbook thing to do would be to put him into a coma? And then he stays vegetative for the for for the case, right? Us never knowing, will he wake up and be exonerated? Will he spend the rest of his life in a coma here? Whatever. But like you usually leave him in that limbo, right? Like will he, won't he, will he, won't he? Well, but they just killed him. Well, they cut away. They don't actually pronounce him dead there. It's, it's by implication in the episode you learn that he died. Uh, they made his wound the kind of wound that you can't staunch easily unless you field, are right. unless yeah in the field unless you're in a hospital with everything you need you can't stop a carotid artery like bleed like that's that's why it's used in TV shows like oh he was just about to you know confess the crime he was about to reveal the the whole mystery you know it's a very Scooby Doo kind of way to die because it's so hard to stop for that reason. What kind of Scooby-Doo did they I run where you live? I count the amount of Scooby-Doo's where well, the carotid <laughs> artery ended the episode. Scooby! <laughs> Scooby sliced a bitch! You know? Like, you know what? You didn't see those episodes? It's like gurgle, gurgle. Right. I didn't do it. Gurgle, gurgle, scoops. No. That, gurgle. You, know, <laughs> you guys probably stopped watching, but this was in the Scrappy-Doo days. Once they introduced oh, Scrappy-Doo, shit got right. really dark. Real dark. Oh, yeah. when right. they started bringing out, what was that gray... Scooby Doo dog. That was uh, like the cousin. He was like stupid doo. Scooby Dumb, right? Scooby Dumb. See, I wasn't so <laughs> off. He laughed. You're like stupid doo. That's terrible. No, it's dummy doo. <laughs> Scooby Dumb. Come on. Uh, we uh, had to be lighthearted, you guys. Our main character just died. I love you, Shaggy. But if you stitch on me, I'll cut you, bitch. You know. Cut you in the like, carotid. <laughs> I'll shank your ass. You know. Oh my- very oh very God. dark very very dark. i was really 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 again surprised because they had already set up that the prison situation too so like that just kind of you know for that guy to get him so yeah kind of surprised to just have it go you know think how I, sad that guy's gonna be that he was denied the opportunity i know he didn't get comes. a chance to even do what he wanted to do so true so true the courtroom scene i think is most important because we get to see the hooded figure again but this time we get kind of the up close of him what did you guys think Ooh, I said, is something wrong with his face? That's what I said. I mean, obviously, he's the titular outsider. Um, titular? Two times in one night? <laughs> Big old tits. Mike Thriller. said titular in the Shit's Creek podcast. Well, we, we were working off the same vocab worksheet earlier. I figured you guys were. I'm glad you got on the Wordly Wise list 10 already. I also, to, I also like tits. I'm starting, <laughs> as will you should. Well, Uh-oh. Whether they're yuller or not, <laughs> I, I just like them. I was starting to wonder if... As this creature, whatever he is, wanders around, if if like a cloud of 
malevolence or bad happenings go where he goes he, it's like a it's like a pig pen cloud around him and when when you're within the sphere if you if you normally had luck then it runs out like that sort of thing or or, or is he just happened to be there when bad shit goes down and it's not really him doing it that's it i hadn't thought about that that's actually really interesting because it puts the ollie situation into a new light because ollie's a young man and that, no matter what your heartbreak, that's a really drastic thing to do, to go full Unabomber glasses and, and uh, you know, handkerchief, pull a gun and start firing it. Like, that's a really next level shit commitment to to your cause. So it's interesting if, if uh, the outsider, the titular outsider, uh, causes a kind of malevolence that maybe pushes him over the edge to do that, whereas maybe he doesn't actually come out firing at everyone otherwise i think he does bring the bad juju there are real life people who you know are they're sort of harbingers of negativity and they could be around you and you automatically feel like in some sort of bad mood or something like that you just feel uncomfortable or whatever like those people definitely exist but additionally i just think he's like that to like an extreme it's like if you took that idea and you're like but what if he could actually be more malicious than that i so to me i think when he comes around i think what we would find out is he's probably whispering to ollie he was probably whispering to the dad. He was probably whispering to the mom, you know, when she started with the baseball bat and swinging around. Who knows? Maybe she was like swinging at him, you know? She just wanted peanut voice, butter jelly. And he said no with a baseball bat. And she's like, no, peanut butter jelly. And he's like, no, with a baseball bat. And then, you know, peanut butter jelly with a baseball bat, you know, and then it just went from there, went off the rails. Wow. I totally committed to it and I will see myself out. <laughs> really did. I will see. It's been fun, guys. Have a good night. I'll see you later. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, stop. That's not good. You both said you turned Unabomber. None of that. Oh god. Uh, How do we feel about where episode two sort of lands us? We have this question mark with all the fingerprint. We have the book that he goes and gets, which I thought was such bullshit that he like went and snagged it, like right from under the defense, basically. I don't think Ralph would have done something shady with it, but I'm still glad Al caught him yes. with it. I think that's 100% right. I think I think Ralph had kind of shown, it stood up to, to DA douchebag by saying he wasn't going to destroy the evidence, which was clearly what the DA was telling him to do. The, the DA oh, was clearly yes. like, you know, he even asked him like earlier, he's like, did you log this into evidence? when they get the conference uh, video and the, and the fingerprints and stuff. Um, you know, he clearly wants him to destroy Evans, but Ralph has enough integrity, no matter what the kind of shitstorm that he created for himself and everyone else, do the right thing. But I, I, I was glad that Howie's, uh, Howie's PI found him at the same time and called him on what it was. Well, I, I don't even know if it's that you have to be a really good person as much as you have to be committed to wanting to get the guy off the street, whomever the criminal is. So that doesn't necessarily mean you have to be a good person, right? Ralph doesn't have to be like morally well, good. Well, that's certainly... But he wants a bad guy off the street, right? That's certainly the argument he makes to glory... Uh, Maitland later on for after destroying her husband's life and leading to his death he he basically proposes if Terry didn't do this then the killer's still out there and you should help me because of that reason you know that's certainly the yeah. argument he makes whether or not he believes it or if he's just trying to save his own ass a little bit I think it's probably a little bit of both but um, you know that's certainly the argument he switches to Caroline that is where I'm not giving him like a halo because it's like he's still a dog with a bone 
And so it's not, I'm, I'm not, I'm not saying like, wow, you're, you're, you're such a good guy or you're so ethical. It's just like, he really wants to get the right guy and he really wants to stop who's ever doing this, makes him a good person or not, or just, a you know, a cop I, who wants to do the job, you know? I'm curious what your guys take is. And, you know, I think Ben Mendelsohn who plays Ralph is a good, good actor. I think he's actually really compelling and I think he's very nuanced, but you know, he tracks the van, he goes to the Merlin orphan boy, he goes to Dayton, he's really following up this abandoned white van at the same time the Maitlands were in Dayton, uh, vacationing. Uh, he really traces that in that whole story. Is he still trying to pin this on Ralph? Or do you believe that he doesn't think Ralph did it anymore and something else bizarre is happening here and he's trying to track it down? I wasn't sure, because cause Gloria asks him, are you still trying to pin this on my dead husband? or Or what? And I didn't really have a, I wasn't sure what the answer was there. What'd you guys think? I think he's approaching the case finally a little more honestly, and he's just collecting all of the evidence and then looking at that and seeing what he gets rather than picking and choosing which evidence to pay attention to. Uh, I mean, I think he's willing still for Terry to be the bad guy if that's what the the most of the evidence says. But he's also now willing for him to not be the bad guy, which is too late, but at least it's there. I think it's just he's just pulling threads like, you know, it's just these are the loose threads that are still left in the case. So he's just following up on those to see like what shakes out, you know, if there's anything else. Now, the, it, the stuff does shake out because in questioning Terry's wife, you have the daughter sitting there saying, hey, remember that weird thing that happened? Dad got that cut when we were in Dayton yeah. and they kind of explore that a little and they say, remember that it was the male nurse and it was the, um, and he slipped on water. He slipped on a wet floor. Sort of right. Yep. 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 So we know that that's where they intersected was in Dayton. So now we have some goo person, the outsider. And, and the pig restaurant, the, uh, daddy, big daddy's hangry barbecue, which got to tell you, sounds like a delicious place to go eat. was also within distance of the hotel because, uh, Maya says, in addition to talking about the cut, she's full of spilling the beans. She talks about how they saw the restaurant when they were at the mall. The evidence definitely supports something was going so, on. So yeah, I think you just keep asking questions. Yeah. And I think you just keep asking questions. You just keep trying to figure out. I think the dad with dementia is going to play in if you ask me, I think he's going to go try to ask questions. Um, and I think him having dementia is a, a very convenient, can't remember who he saw, when he saw him, that kind of thing. Could give really conflicting information that could confuse things. That seems ripe for the picking. What else is loose, though? Moving into three, episode three, because we haven't seen it, predictions-wise. What do we have that's still like loose on the table? Like, So the white van... The clothes, I want to know where the belt buckle came from. Big ass belt buckle. That was a big belt buckle that I couldn't place from earlier. I mean, earlier um, when might be Terry changes clothes, he changes into kind of more Western looking clothes. And Claude remarks on a big belt buckle. A a review that Carolyn and I saw thought that the clothes belonged to the new character, the new detective that had been hunting. Jack Hoskins. Um, and I do not think that's correct. I think the guy was seeing things. I think we're supposed to see that that, the, that clothing matched Terry that was. His, Goo Terry. His Goo Terry's trip to Dallas <laughs> clothing. Yeah, I, I, I 100% think that's Goo Man. I think that's Goo Terry's clothes for sure because it's a consistent theme with the goo there. The goo on the floor at the bed, which we saw right before then. The story about the nurse and the wet floor in Dayton. 
I think the the goo wetness is a is a recurring theme for sure. I think wherever that belt buckle came well, from is going to link us to something. Well, in the Amtrak scene in the first episode, the ticket he was supposedly asking about would have taken him to Dallas Fort Worth, though but he, he never, go, but so. though he didn't go, but that was the destination that was being talked about. So Dallas Fort Worth uh, definitely is part of Goo Goo Terry's. Uh, locations or locales. What did you guys think about that Amtrak scene when they rewatched it right near to the end of episode two and they saw that what we can assume is Goo Man was actually flipping the bird to the camera on the wall? I mean, I thought it was just part of more of the, you know, the eye fucking of the camera. I, I, I thought it was all, I thought it was weird when I saw it the first time without noticing the fingers, um, you know, so... I don't know. I totally thought there was going to end up being goo on the wall. That's what I thought we were looking at. <laughs> yeah, I thought funny. they were going to say, like, look what you see. And somehow I thought he was going to, because, like, limestone kind of like that would, or whatever that white rock I looked like limestone to me, you could maybe see the goo because it's kind of shiny, the rock is. And so I was like, huh, maybe we're going to see some goo up in there. And then that would start connecting the dots. But then to, for it to be flipping the bird, I was like, oh, okay, that was just. That was just being snotty. I didn't realize we were watching for that. <laughs> well, I thought maybe it was going to be something where, like, he was missing fingers on his hand or something. Like he wasn't nice. really giving, like he wasn't really giving the bird. Maybe he was missing fingers or something. Like, like that it would have been some kind of deformity that that real Terry wouldn't have had. That maybe. Well, you asked about seeing the face, right? Now you specifically asked us, did you see his face a little bit in that last time we saw him? And I said his face looked like it was, it had been messed up. Oh yeah, no, it definitely looks to fit when they pull into him on the lawn. His face is all disfigured and and definitely droopy, which makes me think that he um, he can somehow take the shape of or wear some kind of like Terry mask or other people's mask. That was my that was my kind of take on it after the lawn scene in the courtroom, and then kind of what we're we're getting here is I feel like he he kind of takes on the look of other people somehow, either you know wearing an actual mask or some kind of power. Um, did you notice he was he was. You know, uh, when uh, Fred Peterson kills himself, which was really disturbing the way he kicks out the glasses and you hear the choking oh, and yeah. stuff. Wow. Was that like really visceral without it's actually so having Stephen to see... King to do something oh, like that? You know? Yeah. And the way it was shot, it wasn't it wasn't graphic, but it was auditory, which made it even worse because you can imagine it really in your brain. You could fill in the parts that you weren't seeing. But but Goo Terry was in the background of that scene. You know, he was three yards in the in the in the in the you know further down the street so again that kind of supports you know paul's malevolence theory which i thought was interesting you know what is one of the things that um struck me by that scene that i focused almost more on which is this is going to sound kind of weird but um the woman who sees the glass break out the jogger and the helplessness of being like, you know what's happening just like us as the audience you know what's happening you want it to stop you it's like the it's like the hood man is like is like laser eyes like making it happen and it's like you realize like that front door is probably locked how is she going to get there in time like the helplessness of the jogger actually struck me more because i because i had already seen him making the noose and all that stuff mm -hmm. it was dramatic to have the glass break out but that that feeling of like i can't stop it from happening we had that more than once we had it with the with everyone trying to push on his artery and that like frantic like trying to save someone's life but you can't that's where king gets me those real life fears that we have it's with pet cemetery the fear of pet cemetery is losing your child 
right? It's yeah. like having a scenario where your child dies, your toddler dies while you're supposed to be watching them. That's the underlying fear that really gets to a lot of us. And for this one, it's like, you know, you see someone dying and you can't get to them. You can't change what's happening. Can't um, having your Achilles cut from in a uh, why you got to bring that up why you got to bring that up you are such a bitch <laughs> you know that's so scary to me <gasps> in a re in a re-release of pet cemetery king wrote a for forward for his own novel and he talks about how the idea for it came from the thought of losing uh actually it was losing the cat uh, a cat dying and then the idea of losing a child and it was so morbid um he ranks pet cemetery as his as his most as the work he is most afraid of himself because it's so dark because of the concepts he puts forth in the book are so dark um he he finds that to be one of the scariest things he's ever written um which is interesting i think human hmm. desperation the idea of being so desperate you would do anything um that that is kind of like the biggest fear and and it plays out like we were talking about ollie you know what it what would it take for you to pick up a gun and go to a public place and actually start shooting like what level of desperation must a human feel like to to take these drastic steps yeah and um that that is what we all fear that anyone around us could lose it and do that right like we're all depending on everyone else to keep it together this is the stuff that king taps into that is so much scarier to me than just like you know the mist doesn't scare me. The dome under the dome doesn't scare me, you know, but this does. What do we think of Jack Hoskins? He, you know, we see him trying to hunt and he gets the call, which we learned is him being told to come back. Um, we get the atomic wedgie scene in the peach crease, which, you know, that Jack Hoskins is a regular at the peach crease that Claude, the bouncer, knows him and can get him in a car when he starts giving atomic wedgies to the patrons because he's shit faced. Um uh, this is not a good guy. This is not a stable guy. And, you know, with Ralph on administrative leave, he's like the only cop apparently in Cherokee City or detective anyway in uh, Cherokee City. What, what do we what do we think of Jack? Is he just comic relief or is he something more sinister and dangerous that we should be worried about? I think where he was hunting, where it was sort of that swampy land, where if you look at the, um, the picture that they're using as like the uh, representative of the show of the man uh in the reflection but there's no man standing on the bank of the of the water the fact that he's kind of like hunting in like a swampy kind of land really makes me feel like he's going to somehow tie into the outsider pretty quickly because i kind of feel like there's something about that swampy land and and something coming out of the like a native american the... burial ground that's uh, cursed <laughs> I don't know, but um, but remember how um, the, there was only one quick shot of it. They he was going to kill that boar, that feral hog, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then they show that boar later, and he was all bitten up and eaten. Remember, and so that means that goo man that probably fed on that boar. We've seen two things that have been fed on in such a way. Now I know Jack plays into the book, so I'm hesitant to put Paul on the spot to talk about it. Yeah, uh, I don't I don't bit. really remember. I just know like functionally you don't need this character unless he unless he means something, right? Right. And at this point, if Ralph continues this investigation, he's not really gonna be hurting anybody else. Because for all the uh the other officers and court system is concerned, they're probably happy just thinking, well, you know, as long as no more murders crop up, then if Terry dies, then then that's probably close enough, right? I don't know what Hoskins would 
have a problem with Ralph continuing to investigate. So it's got to be something more. It's got to be something more, uh, more than just an obstruction coming up. Well, we know that the, that the Holly character is coming on on the scene, right? Yes, that's right. That is right. Caroline has done a little pre-read. Well, it's no. it's it's her series of books that the book is a part of, right? Isn't well, isn't that right? She's it's actually um, the Mister Mercedes books. Um, they're called the Bill Hodges trilogy, and Holly is is uh, I guess related to one of the victims in the first book. And she winds up kind of hanging out and assisting Bill throughout the rest of the trilogy and kind of comes into her own as like a full person who had been sort of a sheltered, um, almost like recluse type character uh, at the beginning of the series. The character we're talking about, her name is Holly Gibney, G-I-B-N-E-Y. And she's going to be played by Cynthia Arrivo in the in the show. And I think we're going to see I her. I do not know her. I don't know her either, but I think think she'll be coming up pretty soon uh that's my that was my take on on what i've seen trailer wise well from what i saw it said that she's going to be joining basically the um the the team trying to figure out the the crime here yeah so i think it's interesting i like how stephen king has these universe tying characters do you guys like that about him or do you wish he wouldn't do stuff like that no i love a good universe I mean, uh, I mean i think it expands the the pleasure of the story you know, anything that makes you feel like these characters continue with their lives when you're not watching makes me pulled further into the story. And I think a good universe building does that. So he's had to do a little rewrite here and there on some of his very older books, like The Gunslinger, in order to try to try to accommodate the idea of a universe that he didn't know he was building when he wrote the, those earlier books. Yeah, I also appreciate it. I mean, even if it's just like a sentence in an 800 page book that mentions a character from another book, I'm like, yes, uh, <laughs> even very graphic. he even has a little bit of connectivity with Joe Hill's books. I'm just getting into Joe Hill uh, through uh, Nosferatu because of the TV show. So Nosferatu is the one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, th there are there are some excellent Stephen King Easter eggs in Nosferatu, the book, and actually the way they rolled the TV series out. There is a scene in particular that I won't ruin for you, but a guy goes into a bar, and in the bar are several iconic Stephen King characters are hanging out in this bar, and it's pretty fucking wild. <laughs> yeah, so if you're a Stephen King fan, you should definitely be checking out Joe Hill, especially with uh, now he's got his uh, new, what is it, Lock and Key? graphic novel series is being adapted to netflix so the last thing i want to talk about and this is the thing i always like to pay attention to and hopefully you guys do too um the episode title for episode two was called roanoke which is mm, a famous yeah. lost colony of america and i was curious how that was going to tie in and then uh da douchebag you know uh after he finishes telling ralph about why it's important that they still try and make terry the bad guy to try and offset the lawsuit that will inevitably come from Howie and uh, Glory Maitland. He he quotes Act 1, Scene 5 from Hamlet. It's a pretty famous line. The, you know, more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, uh, than dreamt of in your philosophy. The point that he explains is that there are mysteries in this world that cannot be explained. And maybe Terry Maitland is one of the such mysteries. So you should just move on. Did that, did that seem sufficient for you for naming this episode? Or was there another meaning that you that you thought or took from it? Because um, it's kind of an out there title. Otherwise, uh, uh, why why name this episode that of all the things maybe you could have named it? 
for me, I think with that, with the death of Terry, you kind of, you get that um, Roanoke feeling of like, we are never going to have all the answers. We can't possibly. The man is dead. The boy is dead. The man is dead. We're never going to get the full story. So that for me is where that ties in of like, you know, we, we can all make theories and we can all tie together as much information as we can. But the reality is the true story is, is gone from us and we'll never know. That's what I get. I can't. Uh, I can't think of anything smarter than that. So I'll just. I'll just rest. <laughs> uh, for... rest. I like that. You're like, you're like. I'm just gonna cross my arms over my heart and just take a little breather here. To, to be fair, Paul is very spent from thrusting at finding a uh, a multi-universe cross reference in page 800 of his book. So, yeah, uh, he's tough. Very, well, very and he enjoys tucker. scaring the fucking shit out of me. So. Uh, for what it's worth, episode one of the series was not just pilot. It was actually called Fish in a Barrel, which is an interesting which is an interesting name when you think about how Terry was kind of railroaded, or it seems anyway, uh, was railroaded by the process. Uh, it, you know, there, in a way, he was kind of a fish in a barrel for Ralph to take aim at. Exactly. So, yeah. Yep. That's how I took it, too. It was like it was just it was just too simple, you know? Yeah. Too simple. Too, too simple. Too simple for a good lawman. Uh, why, yeah. why is this in Georgia? I know this is a relocation from the novel, which I believe was in Oklahoma, and not up in like, you know, the Northeast where Stephen King likes to set his books. Why do you think they put this in Georgia? I, I can't answer that definitively. I do know, like, he just wrote a book called The Institute, and that takes place mostly in the South. I mean, he's partially in the South. Um, and... We also know from having visited his house that due to due to the late stage effects of the accident he was in, he has like terrifically horrible arthritis and things in his back and hips still. And so the winters are something he cannot weather in in Maine. So he goes to Florida, but that's still I mean, that's still kind of as as the country goes, kind of the right neighborhood. So he kind of historically writes about where he's at that makes sense but like you just said if they relocated it then that theory is not really that sound so i don't know is the answer the oklahoma thing is just based on a quick synopsis i had read and so maybe maybe that's not right maybe it really does take place in georgia but i don't think so i think they moved it and it also seems like they renamed a bunch of the characters too i'm always curious about that why why certain decisions are made when you adapt a book. Maybe it, maybe since they probably shot it in Georgia, unlike all the other books where they're like, this is North Carolina, this is Washington State, this is, right. you know, Washington, D.C. Maybe they're just like, fuck it, it's Georgia. It's just easier. <laughs> just easier. Right. And like, did, Do you ever watch Sharp Objects? Oh, yeah, for sure. So, like, the very first episode, they're, like, in this gigantic southern mansion. They're like, oh, yeah, this is rural Missouri. You ever been to rural Missouri? You'll never see a house like that in rural Missouri. We talked about that a lot, actually, because of Maisel that we just watched in Oklahoma. People really don't understand that, like, you know, the big mansions are located in town. People with money stay in town. Nobody builds a big mansion in the middle of nowhere. That's not a thing. It's not a thing in the South. Unless you murder people. Well, that's a whole other mess. You murderers! Murderers! <laughs> All right. Well, it... you guys, I think this is pretty intriguing. Even yeah. though you know I'm a scare baby, I feel like that the the true mystery and the way that they've actually laid out the case is is intriguing enough for me to be able to get past the the scariness 
of the goo man to be able to actually stick it out, which is saying a lot, people. That's saying a lot for me. We're very How about you guys? You. Will you keep watching? For me, like uh, Mike alluded to earlier, the fact that Stephen King is probably only getting a story credit and probably not a, an actual screenwriting credit on this, I don't know for that for sure, but that's my guess, um, means that someone else was able to take his written word and dissect it and rearrange it and and make something out of it. And so far, you can really feel the love and the craftsmanship that makes you wish that this was something that you could binge at this point. Um, so yeah, I think I'm going to keep watching. I really wish I could binge it because it would actually make me be less scared. There's something about the way that they are just dealing it out, you know, like one little bit at a time that actually makes me much more scared because I have to put up with the goo man in the house until they till they lay this to rest of who he is sure. and what he's doing and all that stuff. Like, I have to put up with it all the weeks in between. Yeah, it's like knowing there may be someone behind your shower curtain, but having to wait a week before you could check. <laughs> or someone might just come up behind you when you're podcasting. Either either one of those scenarios. I, I agree with Paul. I, I mean, I'm going to keep watching. I, I really liked the true crime nature of it so far but with only the hint of the supernatural, but I feel like obviously it's going to move in that direction, which uh, I'm all about. That's the, you know, uh, psychological horror is my favorite, but uh, I do like a good goo guy. Um, so, <laughs> you know, and, and listen, you know, Jason Bateman has really kind of honed his craft, you know, after so many years of Ozark, um, which is very much of the serious drama crime nature. You know, this feels like him applying those skills uh, of directing and storytelling to a new work. And so I feel like this is a good him stretching his legs along with the Richard Price script, which I think is benefiting, you know, Stephen King writing the source material, but not their scripts. Um, so I think it has a lot going for it. I think it has a lot going for it. I mean, two hours, I watched, you know, the two hour premiere and it, it went very, very fast, which is always a good sign. So. I agree. Thank you guys so much for listening. This has been Caroline Daly from Daily Review. Paul Daly, also from Daily Review. And Michael Caputo from popculturereview.com. This has been a pod clubhouse venture where we try 